This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them please to John 13, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Today's Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey to the exuberant praises of people who would just days later be calling for his crucifixion. It's a sobering reminder that how we start the Christian life is less important than how we finish the Christian life. How you finish matters. Sometimes people forget that there's a whole week of material in the scriptures uh, that occurred between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and we're gonna look at one of those from John 13, the famous foot washing scene. This scene is remarkable for numerous reasons, but probably climactically because it's a demonstration of the humility of Jesus' love. And and I think that we'll see that humility is uh, an absolute necessity for genuine love for others. Humility creates the conditions for love to flourish. So we're going to look at this together. I want to read to start um, John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We're going to consider the story today under three headings. We're going to look at what Jesus does, what Jesus tells us to do, and how Jesus helps us do it. What Jesus does, what Jesus tells us to do, and how Jesus helps us do it. First, what Jesus does. Now, washing the the feet of the person sitting next to you may be enough to gross you out, but that pales in comparison to what Jesus actually did here. We live in a very sanitized world. 
We live in a world where there are shoes and socks and clean sidewalks. That was not the case for those living in the first century. Many of the streets that Jesus and his disciples walked on were unpaved, narrow, badly crowded. Many of the roads were places where garbage and excrement from both animals and human beings would have accumulated. Now, many of the Greek cities in that time required proper sanitation on their main streets. But keep in mind, this is the first century. Uh, Wonderful companies like Waste Management were not around. And so the ability to properly handle waste varied from city to city and varied from location within each city to location within each city. So for example, in Rome, um, running water was available via aqueducts only to those who lived on the first floor, which were often the most wealthy people in the area. Everyone else was out of luck. You live on an upper floor, your garbage, your waste would accumulate in your living area until you can't take it anymore, and then you dispose of it. Where are you going to put it? Well, they had designated dumping areas, but we all know human nature. I'm a little tired, my back hurts, I'll just put it over here. And so you would have this start to accumulate on these streets. So one by one, Jesus, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, the one who gave these men life and breath and everything else, gets down on his knees and washes off the dust and the dung caked on their feet. You've probably heard of the show Undercover Boss. basic premise of the show is you have a a CEO or president of a company who um, exchanges the air-conditioned office and the leather-back chair for the front lines of whatever service or good that particular company does. Usually, for the sake of the show, it's dirty and nasty because they want this big contrast between the finest clothes and the grease that gets all over them. Well, here you have Jesus, who's the ultimate undercover boss. But, listen, the distance... The distance between a well-to-do CEO and a burger flipper is minuscule compared to the distance between the eternal God and the dung-covered feet of his sin-laden disciples. Now, what makes this even more astonishing is that this is the first time in recorded written history, in recorded written history, that a superior washes the feet of subordinates. Washing feet was was a menial task, usually reserved for slaves and servants. Uh, But in all of Greek and Roman literature, we, we don't have another example of a superior washing the feet of those who are subordinate to him prior to this scene. So he's shocking the world. It's no wonder Peter responds the way he does. This is unheard of. He's breaking with with cultural mores. He breaks with tradition. He's the ultimate undercover boss. But it gets better. Whose feet are these? Whose feet are these? You know, it's, it's one thing to wash the feet of people who build into your life, right? Who refresh you, who you love, who you love being with, right? It's, that's one thing. That's one thing. But whose feet are these? These are the feet of men who have at times misunderstood Jesus They're the feet of men who have doubted who he really is, who at times have questioned his authority. Two of these feet belong to a man who will deny even knowing him in front of a crowd. Two of these feet belong to a man who will flat out betray him into the hands of the Jewish leaders to be crucified. 
Jesus knows this and yet still washes their feet. This is what Jesus does. I often wonder to myself, could I do that? Could I wash the feet or perform some service to someone who has routinely questioned my motives or misunderstood me or even betrayed my friendship? Could you? Jesus enters into this needy mess of people who haven't been especially loyal or understanding. That kind of love is radical. This is what Jesus does. Second, what Jesus tells us to do, we find that in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So here we have Jesus, of whom the scriptures say all things have been created through him. Jesus participated in the creation of a cosmos whose dimensions we still don't know. In washing his disciples' stinky, soiled feet, Jesus doesn't begin by assessing what his talents are. This particular act of service, which Jesus will tell us to emulate, doesn't begin with what Jesus, uh, his own desires or his interests are. That's not the starting point for the scene. Jesus starts with what? He doesn't start with his talents, doesn't start with his desires, doesn't start with his rich history of performing unbelievable feats. He starts with the need of those around him. That's where he starts. Now, having your, first, having your feet washed in the first century was a very practical need people had, and that's where Jesus starts. Now, for us, most of us, uh, that's not a practical need we want met. But there are other practical needs that we have. What are the needs of the people around me? And keep in mind, it doesn't start with what my education is. That's not the starting point. It doesn't start with what my profession is. It doesn't start with my passions or my interests. The first question that Jesus begs us to ask is, is not what do I bring to the table? No. The first question is, look at the people around you. What are their needs? What are their needs? I tell you what, my heart is warmed every time I witness the nursery here. We have people in our church who sit on the floor every Sunday to care for the tiniest, most vulnerable human beings we have in this church. You realize what an incredible act of love that is. There are parents in our congregation who are spiritually starving when they show up to church on Sundays. They've been run ragged, trying to care for their babies. And the opportunity to sit, to listen to God's word preached is a need that they have. And it's a need that many of us have an opportunity to help meet. Let me give you another example. We have a woman in our church who helps us get this room uh, ready uh, for worship on Sundays. And one of the things that she does is she walks through each row of pews to tidy up, make sure that everything's neat and nothing's out of order. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. As she does this, she prays for each person who will sit there. We have a woman in our church who does that. 
the question doesn't begin with, what am I interested in doing? That's not the starting point. When Jesus got a whiff of his disciples' feet, do you think he thought to himself, I love this task? I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. Creating another galaxy. (laughs) Calming another storm. I don't know that he was attracted to the task. But he was attracted to the people he was loving by doing the task. There are two different ways we can love people. This is what's interesting to me about Jesus' love. Two different ways we can love people. On the one hand, we can love somebody because of how it makes us feel. We can love someone because we like how it makes us feel. We might look at another person and say, I love you, I have to have you, and when I do, I will feel complete. I feel like I've, like I've, I've arrived, like I'm somebody. We love them because of how it makes us feel, but that's not really love. It's self-serving. It's not real love. The other way, the true way to love somebody is to be so in tune to how they feel. True love says, what can I do to make that person feel special? Regardless of what the task is, regardless of how interesting it is, regardless of how it makes me feel, what can I do to make them feel like they're somebody, like they're a million bucks? That's real love. The acclaimed foreign film, Three Seasons, is a series of vignettes uh, about life in post-war Vietnam. One of the stories is about a guy named Hai, who's a cyclo driver, which is the bicycle rickshaw. Hai uh, and Lan. Lan is a beautiful prostitute. Both Hai and Lan have deep, unfulfilled desires. Hai is intensely attracted and, uh, to and in love with Lan. Uh, Lan lives in grinding poverty and longs to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes that the money will, she makes by prostitution will, will be her means of escape, but as the story is told, it, the, the work brutalizes her and enslaves her. High uh, enters a cyclo race, and he ends up winning top prize. And with the money uh, that he won from, from winning this race, he brings Lon to the hotel. He pays uh, for the night, he pays her fee, and then to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using his power and his wealth to sleep with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in a normal world to fulfill her desire to belong. Well, initially, Lon finds this grace deeply troubling as you can imagine, she's suspicious. She thinks that, that uh, High has done this to control her. But when it becomes apparent that he's using his power to serve her, it begins to transform her. It refreshes her. It changes her outlook on life. This is what happens when we serve others for their sake. When we choose to use our time and energy, our resources to contribute to another's good, not out of self-interest, but to give them life, it rejuvenates them. 
Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and says, just as I've done for you, you should do for others. Third, how Jesus helps us do it. Now, when you think about that, for any length of time, you realize that that kind of love is incredibly difficult. I mean, you're talking about doing something you don't want to do, maybe even have an aversion to, to meet the need in someone else, and not for the sake of winning their approval or controlling them or to set, setting some self, self, self-centered agenda up for the future. You're talking about just doing it for them. That's hard to do. That is hard to do. My wife may not particularly like cleaning toilets, but there's a benefit to it. It's our clean toilets in the end. How about cleaning someone else's toilets? How about doing something you don't want to do for somebody else's benefit, not your own? That's hard. That's hard. How am I going to find the motivation, the strength to do that? Well, Jesus gives that to us. Same chapter, John 13, verses 6 through 8. He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Simon Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus says this. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus isn't saying, Peter, your feet are awful. (laughs) Unless I take care of this, we just cannot hang out anymore. That's not what he's saying. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He's upping the ante. He's raising the bar. He is alluding to what is going to happen to him the very next day, his death on the cross. He's talking about another kind of cleansing that's going to happen through it. He says, unless this happens, you and I will not have communion with one another. Peter, if you think washing your excrement-covered feet is a dirty job, just wait. I'm going to take the punishment for your sin upon myself. I'm going to take the hit for you. Talk about doing something you don't want to do for someone else's benefit, not your own. It doesn't get any clearer or more compelling than the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes the hit. For her 54th birthday, a gal by the name of Shirley Digert of Teague, Texas, decided she needed some more excitement in her life. And so this grandmother of three signed up for her first lesson to leap out of a plane from roughly 13,000 feet. When the big day arrived, uh, Shirley suited up for her jump. She strapped herself to her instructor, Dave Hartstock, uh, in order to do this tandem dive. Well, after jumping from the plane, the instructor and the student pulled the ripcord. The ripcord worked properly, but the parachute became tangled and only opened partially. Of course, uh, skydivers carry a reserve parachute for the emergencies, but unfortunately, the primary chute had wrapped itself around the release point for the reserve parachute. And as Dave, the instructor, tried to untangle the two parachutes, he realized that they were running out of time. Later, Shirley said, I thought this is how I'm going to die. I thought God help us. Spiraling toward the ground at about 40 miles an hour, Hartstock gave Shirley a strange command. He said, lift up your feet. 
Although she didn't understand the request, she obeyed her instructor. Hartstock then rotated his body under hers in order to bear the impact of their landing. Dave Hartstock was going to be Shirley Daggert's cushion. I could hardly believe it, she said. He broke my fall. Shirley walked away from the impact relatively uninjured. Dave survived the fall, but now, except for some movement in his right arm, he's paralyzed from the neck down. Of course, the cross cost Jesus much more and accomplished much more than this story illustrates. But pondering the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in as many ways possible is critical. The degree to which you see what Jesus has done for you on the cross and the degree to which that has gripped you is the degree to which you'll be able to follow what he's calling us to in this story. See, when you grasp the cross, there are attitudes that change. There are attitudes that dissolve. No longer do you say, you know, I'm well-educated. I shouldn't be working in the nursery. I'm a successful entrepreneur. I shouldn't be cleaning carpets. I made a great living for myself. I shouldn't be handing out bulletins. I should be doing more glamorous work in the church. I've paid my dues. Somebody else should be doing that. When you grasp the cross, when you truly grasp the cross, those attitudes dissolve. Instead, the attitude becomes, I am willing to take the hit for the good of those around me. I'm willing to perform monotonous tasks, remedial work, boring work, disgusting work, uncomfortable work, for which I'm overqualified for the good of those around me. See, that's how you know the gospel has gone from being a principle you can recite to a life-transforming power. You know the gospel has gone from being a principle you can recite to a life-transforming power when you're willing to take the hit for others. When you're willing to engage in stuff that you're not particularly interested in for somebody else's benefit, not your own. Because when that happens, Christianity is no longer something you do. It's who you are. How many of you remember the classic film, The Princess Bride? I'm ashamed to say I had never heard of it or seen it until I met my wife. It's her favorite film. Mewage. Uh, well, the story begins. There's Wesley. Wesley, he's the mistreated farm boy. He's uh, employed by the beautiful Buttercup. And uh, as the story starts, it, it becomes apparent that nothing gives Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Right? She commands him to do various back-breaking and laborious chores around the farm over and over again, to which Wesley always replies... As you wish. As you wish. Well, eventually, Buttercup realizes that when he says, as you wish, <laughs> Wesley really means, I love you. And upon this realization, Buttercup discovers that she loves him in return. She's won over. She's won over by Wesley's gracious service and unconditional love. What makes Wesley's love so amazing is that nothing deters it. 
Even though he's blatantly mistreated by her, he never stops loving her, never stops demonstrating that love to her by serving her, never stops. See, Jesus' love for you is much like this. Do you know about his love for you? Have you experienced it? Even in the face of our collective mistreatment of him by prioritizing someone or something above him, nothing deterred him. Nothing deterred him. He still came to serve, to give his life. You know what happens when that gets inside you? You know what happens that becomes part of the fiber of your being? You start following Jesus' example. When Jesus' example, when what he's done for you starts affecting your life, you begin spending your time doing things you otherwise wouldn't be doing because it's for the good of someone else. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, penetrate the walls that we put up in an attempt to justify our resistance to serving those around us. Creating us a a passion to spend our time and energy and resources contributing the good of those around us. Not because there's something in it for us. Not because it's work that we particularly enjoy. I pray that we would be drawn to work we don't enjoy. Because you set us this example. You have done this for us to an exponentially greater degree. As you, Jesus, have contributed to our eternal good at an infinite price, I pray that we would be so moved by that that we would follow your example. And Lord, I want to pray for for that to develop in us as a church, as a culture, and that we would see people come alive because of it. You've set us this example as we should do like you've done for us. So Jesus, we want to spend some time now thinking about, singing, declaring your love for us. And I pray that as we do that, we wouldn't just be reminded of principles, but Lord, we would experience a life-transforming power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.